Jason Gross has been running Perfect Sound forever for a long, long time, over 20 years, I think. And um, it's been an important magazine for critics. And I wanted to talk to Jason about the kinds of things he's seen during that time, the kinds of changes, and also this curious time that we're uh, in right now. Um, we talked in June of 2022, and we were it was sort of like a big emergent space from COVID, although you know, the the emergence from COVID is ongoing, obviously, but there was this sense that um, with vaccines getting rolled out on such a mass scale, there was a really strong sense that there was a, a kind of uh, uh, an opening up going on. And we were very curious about how that was affecting listening and consumer behavior. And, you know, it led us to a lot of interesting topics. Um, our response to COVID, uh, how that related to our response to 9-11, um, and just all kinds of cool stuff. So one of the big questions that all music critics ponder a lot is how did we get to today's sounds? Where did today's sounds come from? And there's usually a, a very complicated answer to that. It's uh, the, the more you learn about history, the more the threads kind of um, interweave in very interesting ways. So I started by asking him how he thought about history, why he thought history was important. You know, for people that do want to be thoughtful, it is important to have some kind of context of, you know, how we got here and, you know, what preceded it to kind of get a better understanding of where we are and, you know, where we'll go eventually. So yeah. it, there's always kind of a limited audience for that, to be quite frank. And I know. Luckily, I know. We're going to get back to that. I mean, academia is actually where people come to think and to learn. Yes. Yeah, but outside of that, it's tough to kind of find a context for that sometimes. But you're still running articles on Bo Diddley. I mean, and he's like, he is like candidate for like, you know, like greatest rock and roller of all time in my book. Totally. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, again, I'm just really fascinated by history. I just think I, I don't, and I guess that makes me an old fogey. <laughs> no, 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 don't, don't, don't think that, because there'll, there'll always be a need for that, and, you know, people in the next few generations are going to have people who are going to be scratching their head and asking the same question. To get at that kind of context, I think that we're kind of untethered from everything and just kind of wandering around aimlessly, and, um, you know, that's, that's kind of sad, and that can be dangerous, too, not to have any kind of historical context for you know, what's happened before and, you know, where we're heading and everything. So I, I think that it is something of great importance. And, you know, well, yeah, let's priority. pick up on that because I think that is actually like a defining problem of where we are right now as a culture because yeah. people don't seem to, people don't seem to understand, you know, losing a million lives to COVID, that that's twice as many as we lost in World War II. Right. And people just don't seem to have like that context that perspective or even just those met those basic metrics you know it, it's interesting i was having a, my girlfriend and i were having this kind of conversation saying that you know younger kids who are growing up who do not know any much of a reality beyond this are going to be totally skewered because not just in terms of the you know the horrible toll that it's taken not to mention the millions and more people who've been sickened by it but also that there was a reality before this that was very different. And to try to reorientate themselves into a society that this is not a reality, which hopefully it'll be one day or or more closer to what we had before, is going to be tough for them. I, I don't envy them. I mean, I'm not just talking about little kids. I'm talking about you know, um, uh, grade school kids or maybe even high school kids, you know, those formative years where your reality is shaped at that age and that kind of affects your thinking for the rest of your life and what's that going to mean for them right. and how they see the world around them. I think it's it's going to be interesting and we're not going to really get a handle that for a long time. Um, a friend of mine years ago, right after 9-11 happened, said something very wise that I think about now is that at that time, he said, you know, we're not going to understand what this really means and how this affects us for a long time. And I, I think that's the same thing with now, that we think 
we understand what the short-term and long-term effects are, but we really have no idea. And it's a lot of it is, is going to be, you know, eye-opening not just for us, but for other generations and generations that haven't even been born yet. I completely agree, and I think that, um, you know, <laughs> what's, there's some famous guy who said, you know, the only thing history teaches us is that history doesn't teach us anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah unfortunately there is some truth to that, yeah. Um, but, you know, I think our perspective on 9-11 now is very different than it was in two or three years following 9-11, and I, I think we sort of went daddy. And I think that even, like, serious people will say, yeah, you know, we did. We sort of went daddy, that, that we didn't see it coming, that we didn't, the alarms were sounding, and we didn't react, and then we overreacted to, you know, lashing out. You know, it was basically David and Goliath, and we just got played. Now, they'll never admit it, but it's just a classic, we just got played. I mean, how else can you look at that? How, you know, what kind of pressure did we squander in Afghanistan and Iraq after that? A trillion dollars? Right, but we didn't learn anything because the same thing happened. Right, right. You know, because there were actually people like Bill Gates who were sounding alarm bells saying, we are gonna, we are heading, maybe not today or tomorrow, but soon towards some kind of global pandemic. And they all treated them like chicken littles right. saying, oh, stop worrying us. This is stupid. We have other things to think about. And then it came to pass. And we were just, we just had our pants down, and you know, look at the result: millions of people dead, millions more around the world who are sick and for it. And we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be for you know how many years, and you know all these culture wars that developed around it about wearing masks, not wearing masks, and so how do we, as critics, uh, as people who like to keep our ears bent towards how this gets expressed in cultural terms? What are some of the significant moments? Have you have you heard a COVID song yet? Have you heard an artist oh, yeah. you're trying to deal with? Yeah. Talk yeah. So yeah, I mean, a few years ago, I, I can't even. Oh, this is for Rock and Roll Globe magazine. I made a, a whole playlist of it, and of course, you know, people make hay of it. And what was interesting is that there were a lot of actually um, Spanish language um, songs about it, and. Um, hmm. You know, you can think of, you know, whatever theory you like about that, that, you know, you know, why, why would that culture pick up on it more than others? But, um, I'm just looking at it now. Mavis Staples, also Jeffrey Lewis, uh, Bryce Dang, um, a guy named Mr. Cumbia, um, uh, is definitely a Spanish artist. Um, and, uh, Young Dolph, rapper, did, uh, something on that. Uh, Tyga, another rapper, Randy Newman. Did a song called "Stay Away." Yeah, um, I wrote about that song. Uh, right about so, that. That's a funny song. I love that. It song. is. It's, it's a great song. So I mean, you know, this was back in 2020. So you know, people were making hay about it. You know, anything topical like that is bound to find its way into a song. So you know, that's not unusual. But you know, that's 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 what always happens. And um, yeah. All right, you got to send me that because there's a lot of those songs that I don't know. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. I can send it for that. Talk to me about PSF. How long has PSF been going on? Oh, God, I think it's uh, 93 or 94. Yeah. That I kinda, yeah. It was kind of done in conjunction with um, a kind of political thing called Furious Green Thoughts and then a literary thing called Assorted Realities. And then I just kind of decided to focus on the music part of that. So, you know, PSF kind of took over everything. Did you, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. You ran that piece of mine on of John Lane and Buddy Holly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, I mean, I started it back then because I was kind of bored and lonely. I, um, you know, I was, I was on my own. I wasn't really dating at the time. And, uh, you know, I was kind of young and full of beans and just, you know, kind of wanted to write but didn't have an outlet for it. So I figured, well, what the hell? I I knew someone else who was doing a zine down in Knoxville. And I thought, well, you know, with the Internet, you don't need a printing press. 
Um, you don't need, uh, you know, a Mimeo or any of those kind of things. I can just type stuff up, put it online, throw it out there, and, you know, easy peasy. And, um, right. you know, you don't even need, I mean, at the time I knew a little bit of, you know, web coding and HTML, but, I mean, you don't even need that because there's hundreds of programs that do it free automatically. So I used all these pen names because I didn't have anyone else writing for me. So oh. I was oh, yeah, I was Anarchy, I was Lewis and Clark, I was Billy Bob Hargis, um, I was, um, what was another one? Philly Stein, like Philistine, you know, that kind huh. of thing. So, you know, eventually people did read it and they did want to write, and then I don't do most of the writing nowadays. I, I have other people that I work with, thankfully. And yeah, yeah. I don't even give, most of the time, I don't even give them ideas. They're the ones who come to me with ideas, and then my job is to juggle it into an issue, basically. Well, so I'm doing my homework right now as I talk to you, and I'm seeing that oh, yeah. somebody mentioned Jimmy Gutterman in one of the best of lists because they liked the way he described the Jordan Satellites. So that's okay. cool. But the other yeah. thing that's very cool is that you ran a piece by Miles Bow on Scott Walker. Oh, yeah. And, um, he actually thanks me at the bottom of this piece, which I never saw. Um, <laughs> and Miles was a student. He was an Emerson student. And oh, really? he left Emerson, and he went and got a job at Stereo Gum, like right out of the uh, right out of the gate. And I remember bringing him back to come talk to my class. So, and I've lost track of him, but I was very touched that he thanked me on this, <laughs> on this piece. I don't remember. I, knew, I remember him talking about what a big um, – Scott Walker fan he was, but I don't remember seeing this piece. I think he's just been very nice and so tipping his hat. Anyway, you remember that piece? So it's ten yeah. years ago, June two thousand twelve. Yeah, which seems like a lifetime ago. That was Jeez, ten years. But I remember because I thought the the subject matter was interesting, and quite frankly, I thought his name was interesting. So that kind exactly. Of, yeah, yeah. But that's that's kind of cool. I I do I have worked with writers over the years who kind of went on to bigger things, and, you know, I guess that's kind of a point of pride to say that they got um, one of their early starts kind of working with me, so I think that's kind of, I guess. Yeah, so who? Tell me who has gone on to bigger better things. Oh, goodness. Uh, let me take a look at the list, because um, I actually keep a list of writers. Give me a second. Um, uh, well, I mean, he was already big before this, but Robert Criscow actually edited several issues of it where oh, yeah. had uh, people from his class um, write the articles. Yeah. And, you know, he was he basically kind of edited the piece, and all I just said is, okay, this looks good. I don't know about this, and, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, Let's see, Andy Beta, who writes a lot for Pitchfork and um, Bandcamp, um, wrote for me a couple of times. Um, Michelangelo Matos, who yeah. was, you know, you know, he wrote a um, whole series of pieces for me, um, you know, kind of early on. Um, I'm looking through the list here, trying to remember. I would also get musicians to write for me. Um, Colin Newman from Wire um, actually wrote for me once. Um, Holger's really? guy from wrote an article for me once. Um, I'm just looking what, through the list. Who else? What did he write about? Uh, Stockhausen. Um, <laughs> not surprising. He was, you know, he was a student and he was always, you know, kind of enamored with him and everything. So yeah. that kind of seemed like a natural. And um, Chris Cutler who I've known for a long time, who's uh, from Henry Cow, and now he's the drummer for Kerubu. Um, Jim Derogatis, who was one of the first people who actually got me uh, to write, he um, he gave me the hootie piece that got him fired from Rolling Stone. And the, oh, the Bangs interview, that was the basis of his uh, biography about it. Of his biography. Which was the yeah. piece that got him fired? Uh, the Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh, piece oh, Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, he he spoke his mind. Not you know, that uh, that might not be yeah. appreciated. No, no, of course not. Especially when you know the publisher is like hanging out with Hootie himself and all that shit. I mean, it's well, classic. That's the thing. But you know, to be fair, that that's not unusual. It's it's not just them. I mean, 
Um, other publications, too, they have, you know, kind of an overarching, you know, editorship that kind of decides, okay, we're going to review this record. We want to find somebody who's not going to be too harsh about it because, you know, this is for our audience. It's not just going to places, too, that do that. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I, look I've been – I remember never chastising me for not, not raving about the Led Zeppelin box and – Right, there you go. Just, just get away from me, Jesus. What do you think? No. Because they wanted, they wanted to have enough feet. They wanted to be pro-Zep. I was like, I'm not pro-Zep. If you read the piece, Jesus. I mean, just, you, you know, it's just like, oh, leave me alone. Well, that's, that's, that's the good thing about running a zine is because I, I don't have an agenda. I will run articles about bands that I don't like. I've run yeah. several pieces about the Carpenters, and I can't stand them. Yeah. And the only reason I run them is because the writers find something intelligent and insightful to say about them. If yeah. it's just going to be a puff piece about saying how wonderful they are, I don't want to hear it. You know, anybody can do that. But right. I think to make an intelligent art- argument for a band that's supposedly very unhip. I think that's something I would want to read and I'd want to share with, you know, the online world and everything. Right. Do you have a theory about why the Carpenters, have, uh, you know, kind of keep ruining their heads? Because they were huge when I was a boy. And I right. remember, yeah, they were just, they, they were inescapable. Uh, yeah. But I'm really curious why they sort of have the, any kind of currency left over because they didn't really, they didn't write, they didn't produce. Uh, it's not like well, anyone's going to say, oh, these, this album was an important album for this idea. That, that's not how, that's not the kind of group they were. I know, but that's, that's not how people who follow them think. I mean, that's, that's kind of, it, it's a different mindset. And the fact yeah. that these hipper bands kind of picked up on them, like Sonic Youth, and there was a whole yeah. indie rock tribute record to them. Right, tribute record, you know, yes, so- I remember that. Yeah, shows that they do have some hip currency to them, even for people like me who still can't stand them. I don't care how many bands I love, you know, cover them or say kind things. I don't. I don't have to be a fan, you know. Why? Why do I have to go along with that? You know. Yeah, and I guess she became kind of a she became a symbol for you know the the disease that she died of too. So. Right. Yeah. I mean. Um, Tim Gordon wrote written that song about that um about her and um that uh, Todd Haynes movie, you know, Superstar of course, you know, kind of gave them cultural cachet. So, you know, there's that. I, I still don't like it. <laughs> so name some other bands where you've gotten pieces that you like, well, I wouldn't normally write a piece on this, but I think the I think the writing makes it worthwhile. Um yeah, there was, oh, my God, I'll have to look it up, but there was a guy who would come up with the most kind of strange ideas of things that I'd, I'd never even heard of um, called, John, his name was Jonathan Ward, and I wish I was in touch with him still. He wrote about industrial musicals, and this has nothing to do with industrial music. This has to do with industrial companies who put together musical productions I guess for morale purposes or, or uh-huh. something like that. And I didn't even know this was a thing. And he, he was an expert and he wrote a whole article on that. And then he did another one about adult musicals, um, you know, for, you know, the adult film industry and that kind of thing. And again, you know, you don't think about that. It's kind of a stupid cliche and everything, but. It, it is a thing and, and it, it was a great idea. And I was like, wow, you, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of thing I love to come across. And to be honest, that's one of the best things about doing it is I learn a lot. Right. Um, people will pitch me about artists I've never heard of, but if it sounds like someone who sounds interesting, I'll say, yeah, I mean, I'll learn too about it. Go ahead and write. I want to find out myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever had to kill a piece? Um, yeah, but I mean, more because the, the author had second thoughts. And oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. There, were, I mean, I don't know. Some some of the things are a little, you know, sensitive, and I don't want to, you know, kind of put anyone on the spot about it. But 
you know, they would have second thoughts to say, I don't, I don't know if this is something really I want to share or, you know, mm-hmm. circumstances changed or, you know, something else came up that made me change my mind about it. And, you know, I'm not going to put an article out that someone says, you know, don't. That's, that's wrong. That's, you know, that's, that's totally immoral. So I'm not going to, I will try to convince them otherwise yeah. if I really think it is a good piece, but I'm not going to put it out, you know, despite what they say. You know, that's wrong. What about you? Have you ever had a piece killed? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, not with me, you know, for my own publication. But, yeah, yeah with other places that happens all the time. But, I mean, it's, it's not it's, – the thing is, it's not always something sinister. It's Sometimes it's like they – there's something similar that they're coming out with otherwise, so they don't want to have right. two pieces about it, or, you know, they don't have space for it, and – you know, I'm all for that, especially if they want to throw a kill fee at me. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I mean, sometimes I've been able to then take the pieces elsewhere and get it published, or maybe I can just, you know, put it in perfect sound. So, you know, it's, it's annoying, especially when you spend all that time and thought behind it. But it, you know, it happens. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, er, early on, I, I did get kind of, to be honest, I, I would get kind of pissed about it and, oh, yeah. you know, when it happens more than once, you, you kind of figure, okay, this is this is how it works. This happens, and you know you got to pick your battles. And to get mad about it is just totally self-defeating because yeah. all that's going to will never work for that publication again. You know, maybe you don't care, but still, you know. Right. 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 Well, yeah, you learn that with the publications that you want to stick with. You're like, yeah, this is you know, it's a good situation. I'm just gonna I'm gonna roll with it. You know, whatever. It's yeah. Important to get. You know, yeah, and that, that that even happens to me now. I mean, I'm not going to go into that, but you know, it's that it, it's part part of the field, and you know, you have to kind of expect it and kind of grow a thick skin around it. Otherwise, you're not going to be doing this for long. Yeah. So, what do you think has changed about criticism, given the the delivery mechanisms that have changed? Like, if, you know, when I was starting out, we would get LPs in the mail, and then right. that switched to, you know, then cassettes out started out selling. Uh, well, that was after CDs came out, and then cassettes started selling, outselling CDs at one point, and then there was a there was a weird stretch in there in the '90s where I was trying to digitize my whole CD collection. <laughs> oh yeah, stupid idea that was. Oh, yeah. But it didn't occur to us that that's what you know that obviously that's going to happen. Like that's they have all of that digitized. There's no need for me to digitize it, but there right. was a window there where it was like. No, I need to get all this stuff on my hard drive. And now that just looks so quaint and weird. Like, yeah. And there's been so many format changes in so many uh, different ways that we've been through experiencing the music, consuming the music. And I'm curious about the ways in which that's changed the way you think about it. Do you have any ideas about that? Well, I mean, I was kind of the same way as you when, you know, kind of the whole digital thing started that I was thinking, well, I better – go spend my money and buy everything I love on a CD rather than these old creaky LPs, you know, not knowing that they'd become collector's items or that they were probably mastered better than these stupid CDs that I was buying at the time. But, I mean, you know, that's that's kind of part and parcel of, you know, the way things change from, you know, cylinders to 78s to LPs, uh, cassettes, A-tracks, CDs. Um, streaming and then, you know, whatever's going to be happening afterwards. It's, you know, it, it's going to keep changing. But the thing that bothers me about it is, well, it, it, you know, I, I should say it, it's a twofold thing. You have kind of um, a feast now instead of a famine and that you have access to all these wonderful things. It's so easy to find and discover music that, you know, you wouldn't have ordinarily come across. And that's, I think, a wonderful thing also for, you know, younger people who may not have experienced it. Now they can kind of jump around and, you know, find all these things. And, you know, the people that get pissed about all these, you know, kids discovering Kate Bush through Stranger Things, I mean, that's insane. These kids weren't even born then. And you're getting mad because they didn't know about it? I know. Why, I, know why do, I, I don't understand. It's like one of the great one of the great things that can happen now is just to come across something kind of accidentally on a TV show or anywhere on a TikTok or anything, and it can just open up a whole 
you know, like the whole history, this, this woman's whole catalog is sitting there. Right. Uh, that's that's and, not the way it was when I was growing up. I mean, we used to, <laughs> we used to, it used to take like, uh, you know, you would spend years tracking down this obscure record right. that you knew was out there. Right. right. And like I was saying, there, there is a plus side to it. It's good to have access to all these things, but at the same time, you know, you have to realize that having all the stuff at the fingertips at your fingertips doesn't necessarily make you an expert. You kind of have the illusion of, you know, uh, having access and kind of know everything. And, you know, then the, the da- there's a lot of downsides, of course, because, you know, for somebody like you or me who's been around for a while and you hear a lot of stuff, you kind of got overwhelmed by the history of it. And when do you have time to go back and listen to your favorite stuff if you keep trying to listen to new stuff, you forget about it, especially if it's digital and it's not sitting on a shelf and you can look at it. You know, how are you going to remember it? Unless, you know, you're, you're sitting around with your phone that has a shuffle and it's kind of throwing stuff at you all the time. Right. And you know, I, I think that's a problem. And the other thing I kind of worry about is because you're not able to kind of remember everything, this might affect whether we're able or not to appreciate something, though, when we hear it or not. Um, well, that's because we're yeah. bombarded with everything. I mean, I don't know if there are any studies that have been done on that, but it would be interesting to kind of understand that better, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. I'm wondering if Apple Music or Spotify, how much of their uh, metrics do they share with people? I well, haven't done I mean, a lot of digging in this. Have you, have you read any good articles that talk about, you know, Popular well, I mean, paths or popular threads or whatever? Yeah, I mean, if if you just go to Spotify, they will give you the numbers right there and then for, you know, how many million or how many thousand, you know, people have streamed the song. You can see it right there in front of you. On, on oh, the I guess. Uh, that's but, I know that, but I'm talking about, like, uh, cumulative, like, not just by the year, you know, like, the, at the end of the year, they send you, you know, but... Also, like, we're seeing these interesting correlations, like this person clicked on Chicago, and then they clicked on Alanis Morissette, and then they clicked on The Clash, right? And there's these interesting sort of pathways that are happening all the time, and I bet you there's some really interesting stories to get told through that data. There is, but the thing is, it's not completely altruistic. They purposely point people to... Oh, I know, yeah. So, I mean, it's great to think that, you know, we can discover, but, you know, they, they're not just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts and everything. They're, they're trying to point you to certain things. And, you know, that's, they're a business. I mean, that's the thing at the end of the day. They, you know, they do supply us with this great music, great joy, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, they're trying to get money off you and trying to suck you in and, you know, keep, keep at it. But, the, the, of course, the whole problem is that the artists get micro pennies on the songs for it. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's even worse than it had been before with, you know, kind of, you know, the payments that they get at everything and trying to make a living off of it and everything. I mean, it's a pittance. And, you know, it's, the other the other problem then is I don't think it's even a sustainable system, especially when the streaming services kind of struggle to make profits find new users, and, you know, if one or more of these places disappears, that means a lot of the music that we've accumulated through all these downloads and these playlists may just vanish. And because we don't necessarily have all our music as physical products nowadays, especially the last few years, a lot of that might be lost, you know, if it happens. I mean, then what do we feel? You know, we're we're a bunch of zombies wondering around, where's my music? What do I do now? Well, I, I don't know. How different is that from, you know, a record, a really great record that wins a lot of critical attention and stuff, going out of print after a couple of years, and then after a few more years, then you can't find it anywhere. Right. It's similar. Right. It's not, like, lost, but it's harder to right. find. And I mean, we went through a lot of that. Yeah, but, I mean, you 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 own your records. You own your CDs, unless, of course, you sell them. But, you know, music you've accumulated by paying these monthly fees on your playlist and favoriting and then having the stuff on your device, 
that service is gone or you stop paying for some reason and boom, you're, you're out of luck. That stuff is all gone. And then how do you accumulate all that stuff again that you've just had digitally and virtually? You know, yeah. you're, you're really in the pickle if you really had a connection to that music. And yeah. some of the stuff not available in a physical format. So then what do you do? Right. You just have to go another service and hope they have it, you know, right? Right. So I dumped Spotify because of the Joe Rogan thing. Because right. I thought, A, it was really obscene, and B, I really thought they fumbled it. They did not handle it well. Like, I oh, don't, did. you know, I didn't, oh. you know. Um, and now I'm on Apple, and I'm right. actually, I mean, there's, you know, there's pluses and minuses to both of them, whatever. I can live with the, the little quirks of the individual system. Apple actually, the fidelity is better. And if I can notice the fidelity is better, I'm not, right. I'm not really like an audiophile, but if I can tell the difference, then, wow, I'd much rather have the better fidelity than the, than the other one. But I let a lot of my playlists go. I mean, I kept making playlists. That was my favorite thing to do was make playlists all day long. And I just let a lot of them go. And I know they're still, I have an account and they're still sitting there and you can go find a site that'll, you know, you can hack together an Apple playlist or your Spotify playlist. But frankly, I don't really miss a lot. I don't, I don't find myself yeah. thinking, oh, I wish, you know, that, that, <laughs> that Dylan electric list that I made, you know, I wish I could get access. Like, no, I just, I do that on the fly all the time anyway. It's not, so it is a little bit more ephemeral. Um, and I'm really curious to, uh, I'm curious what, where the cliff edge is for me, right? Cause I've already gone off the edge of Spotify and I've like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's several hundred playlists that I just don't, I've just let go, right? Like, right. like you're saying, it's like they, they're zombies. They don't exist for me. So, but I don't right. really feel like it's been, detrimental or it's interrupted by listening habits or it's it's led to any kind of loss that I can feel in a tangible way. I get the tangible stuff. I get I get the owning the and that definitely feels like a loss. The twelve by twelve, the album covers, the format, the graphics and all of that, yes, I get that the invisible part and then not having it on a hard drive, not having a tangible product, that's that can be a big problem. But for the most part, I just don't I just don't I I'm not sure how much of a cliff I'm seeing like you're seeing there. I'm wondering if we can yeah. come up with a more dramatic example. Well, I mean the thing is you were you were able to, like you said, kind of go on to another service to, you know, kind of recreate it and have you created playlists in Apple? Oh yeah. Okay. So that took some time, I guess, right? Yeah. But it's okay. really, this is really so, fun. It's 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 like putting together a mixtape, right? It's like it's fun to right. think of what would go next, you know. It yes, but you you spent probably some considerable time doing that in Spotify, and now you're like, okay, well, now it's all gone. I I don't care, and now I'll just kind of do it again, and you know that's good actually. But you know, will everybody else be able to or have the kind of motivation to do that? Maybe not. I think a lot of people wouldn't, and. I'm not saying that you have to stay with one service, otherwise you're going to hate yourself for losing everything you've done. But, you know, the again, I, I think the bigger problem is really that these services are kind of hang, hanging more of us on a thread than we appreciate, and they're trying to make money. And if at some point it doesn't work out, you know, what are they going to do? Yeah, you know, yes, okay, gonna, that's, yes. Oh, now I understand you better, yeah. Because like Sirius and there were two services, Sirius and what was the other one, digital radio, and then they they finally merged. Right. Um, so, but yeah, if Spotify doesn't survive, yes, I could see how there's like that's very problematic. Right, and and what's going to happen is that you know the other services have monopoly, they won't have much of an incentive to be you know kind of responsive to customers, so. You know, you can complain about Rogan, and I, I think he's an idiot, and I think he should be off the air too. But you know, you dig around the other services, and are they really as good-hearted as you think? They're they're big well, corporations. They well, do a lot of. I mean, well, that was that was very clear to me that you know, I'm just going to dump Spotify, and that a year later, Apple probably be in the same kind of mess. Like they're all just well, sort of you know cutting the yeah. same damn deals. 
lead morally consistent is very tough and 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 you know it's it's you know there's a lot of twists and turns to get there and you know I mean more power to you I understand why why Neil Young did it and then kind of a little bit of waves happen there but Spotify is still around and they're they're still doing well you know it didn't change things and that happens to Apple and Amazon I predict the same thing that they're going to go with bottom line and say, you know, we're sorry you feel that way, but this is what we're going to do. And eventually they might stick you with ads. They might raise the prices. And, you know, then what do you do? Right. Well, so Netflix is sort of showing us how if they're going to spin out, this is how they're starting to spin out. Yeah, exactly. And and that's going to happen all over the place, I'm telling you. Right, right. So could you think of an artist or a genre or a style that – is has been the beneficiary or maybe has died or gone away because of the technological advancements? Well, I mean, mumble rap definitely on um, on SoundCloud, you know, that kind of um, kind of developed there more or less. Huh. Um, and the fact that on Spotify to get a count so that you get paid, you have to have a certain amount of time that a user plays on it. So, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact place, but they were saying that basically that kind of changed the shape of the way songs are composed, where hooks were kind of thrown early into it to kind of drag you into it mm. to make mm. into them. So, I thought that was kind of interesting that that kind of changed the compositional model of that. Mm-hmm. But what, what I find it really interesting, though, is that the whole idea of the album is still with us. Why the hell should that be? We're yeah. we're in an age where literally an album could be eight months long if you wanted it. Right. But for perhaps our attention spans or the fact that we're used to 40 or 80 minutes, you know, depending on the old formats, we right. still get albums. Right. From you know, the, the, you know, smallest indie artist that sells like a dozen copies up to Adele. We still have albums. Right. Why? Right. You know right. What I mean? it, it, it's amazing. Yes. That it has stopped, and it's going to be around yeah. for the foreseeable future, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, and they're all, and everyone knows what an album means. And everyone right. understands the track sequence on a, and the order on an album long after the user has the ability to hit shuffle anytime they want. But we would, right. you know, we, people just are not going to hit shuffle on Dark Side of the Moon. That's just, like, not the way no. to listen to that thing, right? No. no. But it's it, it's just still amazing that we're we're still at that place decades after the fact. I mean, I don't think, look, listen, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I still love albums. Uh, you know, I'm kind of old school, so I think that's cool. But it just kind of amazes me that we're still in that mindset, you know? All right. Talk to me about um, uh, some of the more surprising things that have happened to you running a magazine like Perfect Song Forever, like a way that an article may be turned around and turned into a big success uh, yeah. when you didn't expect it, or like something that performs really well and you would never have guessed that that would perform really well. Well, um, when John Hassel died, um, New York Times and The Guardian um, quoted the, art, the interview I did with him. And I, I was amazed at that, quite frankly. Um, I mean, I was proud of it. I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite artists. And honestly, well, I can tell a little bit of it. I'm working on a project with a label, you know, about a release of his. But I was I was very touched to see that, you know, that that made it out there like that. Um, there, was, there was something else I was going to say. Before I got a little caught up in that. Um, oh yeah, the bad songs of the '70s. So that that article happened because I was bike riding with friends, and one of us got a flat, and we were stuck listening to some terrible party where they were playing the one horrible soft rock song after the other, and we were just gagging and trying to come up with a game of can you think of a worse one and. At that time, I think this was back in the 90s, there was, you know, the nostalgia came back for the 70s. So I said, you know, the hell with it. I want, I'm going to make a list of all the worst songs that came out of there. And there was like hundreds. And that became one of the most popular articles on the site because people took offense because 
some of those songs were wedding songs or when they fell in love or all these other special memories. And, you know, I would get tons of hate mail about that. And, um, you know, I still do over the years. And I, I get that. I mean, just because I don't like something doesn't mean, you know, it's not it's not useful to other people. But, you know, I was just kind of surprised by all the feedback about that. Yeah. Um, and th- it was called Bad Songs of the 70s? Yeah, I think the title might, might have been something like Bad Songs They Say So Much or They Mean Something. <laughs> yeah. Like that. And I think people were offended by that also. So, um, And then there were kind of little snarky comments about some of the worst ones just to kind of, you know, stick the needle in there and, uh, and all. So, yeah, that's what, that's what happens when you, you say negative stuff. Do you have a um, job of an act that you really dislike that has turned into a record that you really like? Um, I mean, I, I can't really think of any any. I mean, I don't know. Maybe when I first heard Radiohead, I I didn't kind of understand what why are people wasting time and I've seen them <laughs> I've seen them live five times now, so obviously I've changed. Uh, how I thought about them, but you know, I mean, that, that happens to anybody. Your, your taste, your taste changes about things, and you kind of realign yourself. I mean, when I kind of started PSF, I was more kind of a a snob about you know free jazz and modern classical, and I went to see Billie Eilish a few months ago, and I loved it. I mean, she huh. she's amazing. I uh, I love both of the records she came out with, and um, huh. yes. She's just wonderful. So um, I think it's more that I, I, I hear something and I, I kind of think it's okay, and then I I might listen more, and then I'm like, this is a lot better than I thought. Like um, this Kentucky singer I saw last night, S.G. Goodman, um, who's on Verve Records. I heard one or two songs, and I thought, oh, it's okay. But then I, the more I listened, I thought, she's incredible. And then when I saw her live, and she just, she just really bloomed away. I'm like, she has something that, that's going to really take her places. She's incredible. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I haven't heard of this person yet. Uh, and, I did. And, I, I had that experience, though, when I went to see yeah. uh, Casey Musgraves and uh, King Princess open for her. Oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, uh, yeah, you know, opening act. Uh, <laughs> and by the middle of her set, I was like, She's a star. She's a total star in this woman. Yeah. It's kind of cool when and it, it's very cool when that happens. It's very yeah. cool when that happens, yeah. Um, now other bands you've changed your mind about. Like, I remember when I was a kid, I never, the doors just always left me cold. And they were yeah. big and everyone else was big to speak and everything, but I could just never get past the idea that they didn't have a bass player. I was just like, that's just the flakiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and now, yeah. Like the Doors' greatest hits, I will reach for that. Like I listen to them much more than I ever would have, I'd, and I like something about them. And I would have a very hard time articulating what it is I like about them. It's a yeah. mood. It's a. I just don't, you know. And it's not like oh, the '60s must have been so cool. It's really like no, I just like those sounds. I like the. I just yeah. like the groove that they're hitting. I like the, the chemistry. Whatever it is that they did. I find it right. very enjo- very enjoyable, very listenable in ways that, as a kid, I was always very contemptuous of. Do you have acts like that? Well, not, not specific acts, but I, I think it, it was kind of more of what I was describing before about how I see dance pop. I mean, at the time I started PSF, the whole idea that I would have been a dance pop fan that I am now would have seemed insane to me that, you know, why would you listen to that garbage? And my mindset was based on the whole rock idea where you have to play your own instruments. You have to write your own songs and kind of take care of all your own business or you're a phony piece of shit. Not realizing or thinking that Elvis Aaron Presley didn't write shit or right. Jerry Lee Lewis didn't write shit. Right. And those guys were amazing and you know just the whole thought that you know you don't have to write your songs and take care of all your own business and still make good music it it took took some time for me to kind of accept that but once I did it kind of opened all these doors about I can accept the music and I can enjoy it 
without being, you know, kind of a snob that I was, basically, to yeah. say, Billie Eilish is fucking cool. I love the shit. Yeah. She does write her own stuff, by the way. But yeah. I'm just saying that type of music I can accept and enjoy and appreciate without having to worry, are they all doing everything themselves? Who the fuck cares? Yeah. Yeah. Good music, good music, stop getting hung up, and don't yeah. worry about it. It really took a while for me to accept that. Now I am I'm more than fine with it. I, I love dance pop if it's good. If yeah. if it's the same old shit, if they if there's not a good riff, if, if you know there's not you know something good attached to it, I'm not going to just listen to it. But so give me uh, good. Give me give me three great dance pop records that would introduce me to the style because I'm not there yet. Well, I just mentioned Eilish. Um, she, she's amazing. Lizzo, um, is, oh, is Lizzo, awesome. God. Yeah, she, she's amazing. I, I, I love Lizzo. Yeah, and I, I saw her a couple of times at South by with smaller audiences, and I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this world? And at the time, I couldn't understand that she's a woman, she's black, and she's large size. So she has all these things working against her. That's right. why she was as, 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 popular as she should have been at the time and thank God she broke through and I'm I'm gonna go see her a third time and I can't fucking wait. It's gonna yeah. be great. And her S N L uh host was just a fantastic oh, sure. it's on S N L. Yeah, she was wonderful there. I, I loved every minute of that. And it it was just so gratifying. I mean sometimes people get so possessive saying, Oh, they were cooler when I knew them and they were playing the twelve people I'm like, who the fuck cares? You know? Yeah. I saw Robin, you know, the Swedish uh, dance singer. I saw her play in front of, like, 20 people at South By, and then a few years later I saw her sell out Radio City, and I still thought she was great. That's another one, Robin with a Y. Um, Robin with a Y. Yeah, she's a great Scandinavian singer, and and I love her stuff, you know. Um, Lisa Stansfield, does that ring a bell? Yeah, sure. I remember her back then. Back yeah. I'm not going to sing her song, but all around, well, I just did all around the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. was really nice. I really liked her. I thought she was a real good cool. Oh, she was. Um, it was good. And what sort of, I, I had, um, I got to a point in my listening to rock and roll history where this, this very old school idea became very true for me. It was, you're either going to go down the rabbit hole of the blues, or you're going to go down the rabbit hole of country western. And I went right. straight into country and western. And okay. I fell in love with Lefty Frizzell and like, oh, just the, the whole rockabilly and, uh, juke joints and all of that stuff. Did you, yeah. did you have a similar rabbit hole when you started discovering different genres of history? Um, I guess doo um, Yeah. I mean, when I was, when I, I think I first got hooked when Barry Hansen, aka Dr. Demento, put out like this, this series for Atlantic Records of the Clovers, the Coasters, um I'm trying to think of who else. Um Big Joe Turner, he's not due up, but you know, that that kind of R and B uh era and there was a uh, there was like a, a Rhino series of like doo up. Yeah, yeah, the doo up. Oh yeah, but that's that's amazing stuff. But yeah. I mean, this is this is way before this. This is going back to the seventies. And yeah. when I heard those records, especially the Clovers one, oh my God, I I just couldn't stop listening to that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's it's just pure gold. It's it's just such sweet and catchy music. And it's it's one of those genres where I have never heard a bad song. And you know, sometimes it's just a function of that music, but I mean, maybe there is a bad doo-wop song, but I've never heard it. I mean, I've heard hundreds and hundreds, and and and, and most of it is just so beautiful and just you know otherworldly. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that, and I still that makes me want to go spend the rest of the night listening to doo-wop. What about uh, what about books? Do you have a favorite like underrated? book on music music history that you think more people should know about? Um yeah, I mean a couple. The one one of them in particular that um kind of stood out for me was Valerie Wilmer's As Serious as Your Life, which is um a book about um free jazz. 
and um, hmm. wonderfully detailed about it and just just seemed so fascinating, you know, the way she kind of uh, profiled all these people, and I just wanted to learn more and more, and this is, you know, when I started PSF and reading it, I was just kind of, you know, enchanted by that. Hmm. Um, I don't know this book. I have to go get it now. Yeah, As, as Serious as Your Life by Valerie Wilmer. Great book. Um, now, another one that I kind of have mixed feelings about, but I, it's still kind of a touchstone for me, is Krautrock Sampler by Julian Cope. And that kind of recharged my whole interest in the music. And, you know, I went out and bought a lot of those based on that. But the funny thing is I got to meet a lot of the people in the book, and when I'd ask them questions related to it, they were like, what the hell are you talking about? Where are you getting your information from? You know, <laughs> just to say he took some liberties with what he was saying. Or, huh. you know, he thought, let me tell a fanciful tale whether it's true or not. And, huh. you know, I, I still I, I still owe that book a lot and him a lot for it. But I just thought it was kind of funny to hear from the actual subject of the book, like, you know, that's not actually what happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he takes the Nick Tosh route, not Nick Tosh's route of, like, just make stuff up. If it sounds good, yeah, the book. I, I guess. I mean, I don't know, you know, how he would feel hearing that. But, I mean, the the other book that's kind of like that that I, I still love is um, from the Velvets, The Voidoids. Um which I thought was, you know, a great read. But, again, when I spoke to some of the subjects in there, they're like, what are you talking about, you know? Interesting. Yeah. That's so, but, yeah. But, again, you know, the entertainment value is there. So, you know, who am I, what, you know, if, if you kind well, of understand, you know, I think. Well, yeah, that, I don't know. I, I guess I feel mixed about that. I sort of feel like, you know, like I really admire Nick Tosh's as a writer, but, Right, and I really love his book on country, but everyone knows it's it's largely fiction, <laughs> and and I I think you should sort of just say that, like, you know, I just yeah. got carried away, and this is not history, <laughs> like, don't think of this as history. But then there's also something really fun about just sort of putting it out and like letting you figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I'm saying, that's the entertainment factor. I mean, that's why I love a movie like. The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, even though it's bullshit. It's basically McLaren's, you know, kind of fantasy about what the band is. And when Temple went back to make a real documentary about them, it was boring as fuck, quite frankly. I mean, great that he kind of, I guess, decided to make amends by telling the real story, but McLaren really understood the whole entertainment value of it, you know? Yeah. So thanks for yapping <laughs> with me. Oh, my pleasure. Hopefully you got something useful out of all my oh, yeah, definitely. De- definitely, definitely. All right, let's stay in touch. Yeah, it was great talking to you also. Thanks again for uh, everything, Tim. Okay, take care, Jason. Okay, bye-bye now.